uh, the question before us this morning is, what do we do with a Rebecca? This is what I mean by that. Before moving to St. Louis, I served as the Protestant youth minister uh, at a secular boarding school in northern Indiana. And one fall during new faculty orientation, just after I had given a, a presentation on the spiritual life department, I was approached by Rebecca, who was a new colleague who asked if she could pick my brain on my role at the school. And uh, so we met in the dining hall the next day for lunch. She asked me all sorts of just deep, engaging questions about my denominational affiliation, my theological persuasions, my seminary training, uh, my favorite Christian artist, how we go about selecting worship music for an interdenominational service, and on and on. And eventually, I couldn't help but ask her my own question. I said, you know, what, what's your church background? Because I know you have one. Like, you, you, you clearly know the language, you know your stuff, and we could use more adult volunteers in the youth group, by the way. And uh, she smiled and she thanked me for the offer, but she went on to explain that in a, in a previous life, she said, she had served on staff leading worship at uh, an up-and-coming, kind of charismatic uh, evangelical church for many years. And if I remember correctly, I think she actually had been married to the pastor of that church, but she told me that she had recently decided it wasn't for her anymore, she needed a fresh start. And so she walked away from it all to turn over a new leaf. And I suspect that most of us know a Rebecca, even if you don't personally. Um, if you're in the church world, you are probably familiar with the popular public Rebecca's. How about Josh Harris, who at the age of 21 revolutionized the Christian dating subculture with his best-selling book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. By age 30, he had taken over one of the fastest-growing churches in the country uh, with thousands of congregants, a staff of 50 people reporting to him. And just last summer, after decades of leading that church, he announced that he was deconverting from the Christian faith and walking away from it all, his wife and three kids included. How do we as Christians make sense of the Rebecca's and the Josh Harris's of the world? Do we have a category in our theology for them? Does the Bible, how does the Bible explain them? Many look to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, as sort of the quintessential text on this issue. Can a Christian lose their salvation? And so let's, without further ado, turn to God's Word together for our answer. And would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word from Hebrews chapter 6, Verses 1 through 8. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. It'll be on the screen in front of you. If you want to follow along in your own Bibles, that's great. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to bless you with one of those. See the info bar after the service. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. 
For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Father, as we submit ourselves now under its authority, we pray, Holy Spirit, that in the same way that you inspired these words to be written 2,000 years ago, you would now touch hearts and minds, not just, not just heads, but hearts and souls this morning. God, we need more than good theology. We need new hearts. We know that that kind of change can only come by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, if there's anyone in this room, I, I have to believe there is because of how many people we have here that has not yet come to saving faith in you. Father, I pray more than anything, more than understanding some intricate theological doctrine this morning that we would understand who you are and see you for the good and saving, loving, calling uh, Father that you are as, as you manifest to us, proved through sending your son Jesus that you would draw us this morning to you, draw all of us into deeper relationship with you through your Holy Spirit. And in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray all this. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, so does Hebrews 6 suggest that a Christian can lose her salvation? At first glance, I think it sure seems to. I mean, much like James 2 that we studied last week with the foundational doctrine of justification by faith alone and calling that into question, here, Hebrews 6 appears to pronounce that believers really can fall away from the faith. I mean, who else would the author of Hebrews have in mind when he writes in verses 4 and 5 that those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit? That sure sounds like he's talking about Christians, doesn't it? And many Christian interpreters over the years have concluded as much. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, declared, must not every unprejudiced person see the expressions here used are so strong and clear that they cannot, without gross and palpable wrestling, be understood of any but true believers? He said the author of Hebrews here has to be talking about actual Christians. And so Wesley concluded, on this authority of Hebrews chapter 6, I believe a saint may fall away that one who is holy or righteous in the judgment of God himself may nevertheless so fall from God as to perish everlastingly. And this issue of whether or not true believers can lose their salvation has long stood at the center of the debate between sort of two camps, theological camps within Protestantism. Uh, so last week we kind of dealt about the, the, the division between Protestantism and Catholicism, with faith and works. This, this morning, we're talking about Arminians and Calvinists. So Methodists are kind of following lockstep with their founder, John Wesley, falling squarely in the Arminian camp. Basically, that theology, to oversimplify, is we must choose God, and therefore we can actually walk away from him as well, while Calvinists 
in the theological tradition of the reformer John Calvin, maintained that God must be the one to decisively call and choose us for salvation and therefore our eternal inheritance in Christ is just that. It's eternal. It's it's secure because it's in Christ. It depends not on my faithfulness, but on his. But which is it? I mean, Hebrews 6 seems to be evidence for the former. So can Christians lose our salvation? And if so, how many Ambien do I need to take tonight to, to get a night's sleep? Keeping in mind that I could be the next Josh Harris. I could be the next Rebecca. Fall away. We need to feel the weight of this question this morning. We need to feel the weight of the warning in this passage this morning. And yet, I want to assure you, I want to assure some of you this morning, that if you have truly been saved by grace through faith in Christ, your hope really is secure in him, that you cannot lose your salvation and you can go home and nap soundly this afternoon. But the thrust of Hebrews chapter 6 points to those operative words I just used in that last sentence, that some of you, I can assure, that if you've truly been saved, and so let's unpack it, there are three basic kind of main views of how we ought to or could interpret this passage. Pastor Kent Hughes helpfully summarizes each, and so I'll use his synopsis. Number one is the hypothetical situation. Maybe this passage is describing a hypothetical situation that has never existed and therefore is a warning against sin that is impossible to commit. And it simply serves as a sanctifying what-if line of thought. Just even thinking about the possibility, even if it's a hypothetical of losing your salvation, should lead you to you know, double down in your faith. It's kind of like if, if your parents growing up told you, like, don't go in the attic, but they kept it locked, so it was impossible to get there anyways. Or you can use any other metaphor that helps for you. Similarly, Hughes says the obvious problem with this view is that if the sin cannot be committed, it's absurd to offer it as an argument against falling prey to it. Richard Phillips gives us a further reason to reject this first option. He says we should avoid describing a hypothetical situation. A number of translations give this impression by using the term if in their translation. This does not appear in the Greek text, which is best rendered not by the phrase, if they fall away, but those who have fallen away. The situation of apostasy is not hypothetical, it's very real. Terrible possibility that must earnestly be avoided. And so that leaves us with our last two competing theories that we've already kind of examined. Wesley's, that this passage is describing actual Christians, bona fide born-again Christians, those who hold this view believe that God supplies the grace needed to those who are trusting him, but the ultimate perseverance of any believer depends on the cooperation of his own free will. Therefore, any Christian, whatever his state, is always capable of the apostasy and condemnation that is described here. Or, Calvin's view, number three, apparent Christians. Hebrews 6 is talking about not true believers, but rather men and women who only appear so. 
There are people who have received a thorough exposure to the gospel. They've made an ostensible profession of faith in the gospel and have been received into the fellowship of God's people. However, at a later point, they've abandoned their profession, even becoming opponents of Christ. And so Hughes offers us three arguments for this third uh, option and, and interpretation of the passage that he subscribes to, that I subscribe to, that we subscribe to here as a church. And that's this. And before we even get into his three, uh, I think it's worth noting that the author of Hebrews clearly has been addressing Christians in his letter up to this point. If you go back and look in context of Hebrews chapter 1 through 5, he's writing to Christians. And he's going to resume that pattern in verse 9. He's going to tell them in verse 9, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. So he's going to warn them in verses 1 through 8 and then say, but but in your case, we're sure of better things. You're not like them. But tellingly, in verses 1 through 8 here, he shifts from using first and second pronouns, we and us and you, to the third person, them, those who have been enlightened, You're not like them. And so, with that in mind, Hughes argues three kind of lines of reasoning. Number one, participation in the spiritual realities of those who have fallen away parallels the privileged experience of the children of Israel in the wilderness who fell away and died in unbelief. Again, if we view Hebrews 6 in context, uh, Hebrews is all about sort of connecting the dots from the Old Testament covenant, Old Covenant, to the New Testament, New Covenant. And so we spent a lot of time talking about this covenant community. And as a part of the covenant community, the Old Testament, the fallen Israelites, the generation that Moses led out of Egypt had placed blood on their doorpost. They had eaten the Passover lamb. They had miraculously crossed the Red Sea, observed the pillar of cloud and fire, tasted the miraculous waters at Marah. They'd daily eaten the manna. They'd heard the voice of God at Sinai, but their hearts were still hardened in their unbelief. And they fell away from the living God, and they weren't allowed to enter into the promised land. God waited 40 years for that generation of hard-hearted people to die out. And in context... Again, we can look back at chapter 3. This is what we hear. The author of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? So Hughes sees an analogy being made here between those who think of themselves as Christians in this first century Jerusalem church and those Israelites who allegedly trusted God but proved themselves apostates in the end by their falling away from the faith. On this reading, Hebrews 6 was written to those in the church but not of the church. And that's, if we could just pause for a minute, that's, that's kind of a a crazy, uh, St. Augustine talked about that idea. The city of God, city of man. Look around. This is the visible church. Not everyone here will be worshiping alongside us in heaven. That's a sobering reality. There are those that are in the church, but not truly of the church. The kind of fakers that John writes of in his first epistle. He says in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out so that it might become plain that they all are not of us. 
as we said last week in our sermon on justification by works, the proof is in the pudding. Good trees bear good fruit, Jesus said. There's no two ways about it. And Hebrews reiterates that exact same typology there in, in verses 7 and 8. It says, does the land produce a crop? If so, I mean, the water falls on all sorts of different land. Water's falling on everyone this morning. We're given lots of gospel this morning. What kind of soil do you have? What's the soil of your heart? The only sure fruit of true salvation is perseverance in the faith. If you fall away, then you prove by definition that you were never truly one of us, one of the elect, one of those who's been called, who's been justified, saved. Hughes' second argument for the apparent Christian's interpretation of the audience here is Jesus. Jesus' words in Mark chapter 4, Jesus' parable of the soils teaches us that there really are people who at the beginning look very much like believers, but they're in fact unregenerate. They have not been born again. Not only do they look like Christians, they may even have remarkable spiritual experiences before they fall away, just as the seed sown in rocky places is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, then falls away. And so we studied this over the summer, Mark chapter 4, in our study through the, the gospel of Mark. Plenty of people have had emotional experiences at youth camp growing up, at, at a revival, church revival, Hillsong concert. And, and immediately received the word with joy that came forward, crying, said a prayer, signed a pledge card. Jesus foretells us, if they have no root in themselves, they may endure for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they will fall away. And so Jesus himself clearly has a theological category for people like this, apparent Christians who were never, in fact, born again truly. John MacArthur notes, this passage makes no reference at all to salvation. There is no mention of justification, sanctification, new birth, regeneration. Those who have once been enlightened are not spoken of as born again, made holy, or made righteous. None of the normal New Testament terminology for salvation is used in Hebrews 6. In fact, no term used here in Hebrews 6 is ever used elsewhere in the New Testament for salvation. Finally, and most importantly, for Hughes, MacArthur, myself, others who favor the apparent Christian's identification of Hebrews 6 audience, is because it accords with the biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We can rule out interpretation number two, that these were actual Christians because of the abundance of biblical evidence that it is impossible for true Christians to lose our salvation. Now, I'm going to warn you. I did my annual performance review yesterday with my fellow elders. Some of y'all will be happy to hear that I'm keeping my job, for now at least. But one of the points of feedback that uh, Taylor, I think he's already taken off now, uh, but but that, that Taylor uh, gave me in particular was that sometimes in my sermons, I tend to overwhelm you with too much scripture and that it might be more effective if I slowed down and just kind of let you marinate in one or two passages for longer instead of the fire hose. And so I told Taylor uh, in the first service that I heard him, affirm him, respect and love him. I'll come back to his feedback, but... 
in this particular sermon on this particular issue, I feel so strongly that our assurance of salvation is so crucial for us as believers to understand and to cling to. And there is so much that God has to say about it that I have to at least temporarily take Taylor's feedback. And I thought about, I actually printed off the feedback and I was going to pull on Nancy Pelosi and tear it up in front of you. I thought that, I thought that might be a little dramatic. So no disrespect to the other elders, but this morning I want to overwhelm you all with the biblical evidence that, bibli- that believers, true followers of Christ, cannot lose their salvation. So I'm going to start all the way back in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 32:40, in prophesying of the new and better covenant to come, he says, God, this is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. In John chapter 10, verses 28, 29, Jesus makes good on that promise of God's everlasting covenant given thousand years before. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. 2 Timothy 1.12, I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Jude 24, if you want to write these down, like I said, we're not marinating this morning. Fire hose, you go home, take this home and marinate in them all you want. That will be good for you. That will help you sleep easy tonight. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He's able to keep you from stumbling. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's imperishable because it's seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he will also glorify. It actually, it's the past tense. He already glorified. Paul's like, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit outside of time and space for a minute and seeing our glorification as if it's already happened because it's as good as done. When God calls you and draws you and justifies you, your glorification, your sanctification, your perfection, your entrance into heaven, it's good as done. John Piper explains the kind of call that Paul is talking about here is the call of Lazarus by Jesus from the grave. Same word, Lazarus, I know you're dead. Now come out, wake up, wake up. It's the call that creates new life in John chapter 11. And that is what has happened to everyone who is a Christian. God's sovereign call has created new, eternal new life. John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, Jesus says, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's as good as done. Ephesians 4.30, the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's the promise the guarantee, Paul says, of that future redemption is the Holy Spirit sealed on our hearts. God writes with pen. He doesn't write with pencil because he doesn't make mistakes in the Lamb's book of life. It's in pen. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8, our Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end. I don't know how you get more clear than that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. He will do it. Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor anything to come nor powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a beautiful promise. Nothing in all creation can separate us. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And how about right here in the, the context of Hebrews chapter 6 itself? Richard Philip notes, The writer concludes this chapter with a bold statement of assurance for those who have truly received the gospel, perhaps mindful of the false conclusion that some may draw from verses 4 to 6. He turns in verse 17 and writes of the unchangeable character of God's purpose with regard to the heirs of the promise. The the, the point is that what stands behind all human activity is God's sovereign ordination and promise. The author concludes by writing of, of that promise from God that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steady anchor for our soul. Some of that language should be familiar to you, right? I mean, it's, it's the songs we sang this morning. It's no coincidence. Scott and I get together. We plan the worship set together. Christ alone, cornerstone, sure, steadfast anchor firm foundation. These are hardly the words of someone who wants to convey a fundamental insecurity to those who have trusted in Christ. And Hebrews ends as well in chapter 13 with this blessed assurance from the Lord. Simply, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is a beautiful promise to rest easy I counted 14 passages there. Is that enough? Because I can keep going. They're all over the place. God wants to make it really clear that he has the power to sustain and keep and guard. And he has the desire and he will do it, those who he calls and saves. If there are any Arminians still in the room, find me after the sermon and we'll duke it out. And I've I've got another 14 or 30 passages for you. If it was left up to you, could you lose your faith? Not just could, you would. I mean, you would necessarily, in a heartbeat, if it was left up to you, you 
would walk away. But praise God, it's not. Praise God, it's not. That for those who are truly in Christ, that we have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls because we've got Jesus. He's our anchor. He's our foundation. And so the big question that we're left with this morning then is how are we supposed to interpret verses 4 through 5? Because again, it does sound like he's writing to Christians, those enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit. Well, I think there are actually two viable ways of interpreting it. Um, that's, I mean, that's just what I came across in my research. There may be even more, but we don't have too much time for either, but I'll put them on your radar. The first interpretation, as summarized by, again, Richard Phillips, is that the language of verses 4 through 6 describes participation in the sacramental life of the church. According to this view, once enlightened refers to baptism. We actually know from ancient Christian documents that that uh, within the first century or two of uh, the, the church, that was sort of a euphemism. Another term that Christians were using to refer to baptism was enlightenment, being enlightened. Tasting the heavenly gifts speaks of the Lord's Supper. Makes sense. Sharing in the Holy Spirit speaks of the laying on of hands. Been commissioned, ordained, anointed for a particular ministry in the church. That can happen even to unbelievers. It shouldn't. But we make mistakes as a church. Tasting the goodness of the Word of God would correspond to preaching in the church. You're all here. You're all hearing the preaching. You're, you're, you're tasting of the goodness of the Word of God this morning. But only the fertile soil will bear fruit. And finally, while the power of the age to come would indicate signs and wonders that accompanied the original preaching of the gospel in those early centuries. And so there are those in the Church of Jerusalem being addressed here who have taken part in all of that. They've been admitted to the church's membership. They've been baptized. They've received communion. They've been commissioned, anointed for ministry, all of it, and yet they were never actually truly born again. And the second interpretation is, is not too dissimilar, but it's to read those five descriptors not so much as New Testament practices in the early church, but as Old Testament rituals that some of the Jews in this Jerusalem church were still clinging to. And John MacArthur champions this interpretation. He says these Judaizing sort of pseudo-Christians like the idea of Jesus, but they're not sure yet that they want anything more than just a taste. They just want a sample. Dip their toe in, in, in the water. But they've still got a, a foot in their old Jewish customs, the dead works that we hear about in verse 1 of chapter 6. And so MacArthur points out that the Greek verb in verse 1, aphiomi, means to forsake, to put away. It refers to a total detachment, total separation. It's the same verb that is used elsewhere of our sins. God has totally separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, if we've been justified and forgiven. And, and that's the exhortation here of Hebrews 6, verse 1, is that, that we forsake and put away those dead old works, come to Christ. And, and MacArthur points out, we are never to leave the basics, the elementary teachings of the gospel. You go back and read uh, chapter, chapter 6, verse 1 there. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. 
What's he talking about? Is he talking about graduating from the gospel, sort of the basics, the ABCs of, of Christianity, and let's start talking about predestination and the more interesting stuff? And MacArthur's point is, no, we are never to leave the basics, the elementary teachings, the gospel, no matter how mature we grow in the faith. And so the issue here is not that of growing in spiritual maturity as a Christian, but rather of coming into the first stages of spiritual maturity in the first place by becoming a Christian. It's a matter of dropping, leaving, putting away that which we have been holding on to, Old Testament rituals, whatever your idol is in your life. Read ourselves into this passage this morning, putting that away and taking up something entirely new. Therefore, it can only be a reference to unbelievers. And so MacArthur goes on to argue from there. But I want to, rather than rather than try and do a full-on exposition, exegesis of this whole passage this morning. We'll come back to Hebrews, God willing, in future years together as a church, preach through it line by line, and and, and focus on the, the nuances of what he's saying here. I've just been trying to focus this morning on this idea of that, that, that seeming contradiction and reconciling that. But I want to close with three practical application points for you. What do we do with this text? Right? I mean, if, if we can't lose our salvation, then do we just pull a Pelosi and just rip this page out of the Bible? I would urge you not to do that. Read Revelation 22. Three practical application points. Number one, check yourself. Examine yourself. We saw it last week with the Sermon on Faith and Works. Your profession of faith is not enough. Jesus said, Matthew 7, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we did miracles in your name. They'll say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. We've got to feel the weight of these kinds of difficult texts. If you belong to Jesus... Your life will be the evidence of that. Talk is cheap. Do you realize this morning that if you're not yet found in Christ, if you have not been reborn, this is a very dangerous place for you to be. Jesus makes it clear in in Luke chapter 12 in his parable about bridegroom who's coming back and they're supposed to wait up for him, that there will be a harsher punishment for those who had every reason to turn to him in faith, who heard the gospel preached every Sunday at a Bible-proclaiming church, and who still looked him in the face and rejected him. It would be better that you not be here. Because there comes a point in time when your indecision about Jesus becomes a decision in and of itself. When you're not yet Jesus, I'm still just dipping a toe in the water, at a certain point becomes never again. The opportunity has come and gone. You've crossed the point of no return. There is really a threshold across which Jesus says, I'll leave you up to your own hardening of your own heart. 
And the scary thing is you won't necessarily know when your heart crosses that threshold. It's the kind of hardening that Jesus warned the Pharisees about in Mark chapter 3, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, bold face rejecting Jesus, looking him in the eye and saying, no thanks, I'd rather be God myself. It's the same kind of rejection that we're warned about in 2 Peter 2, verses 20 and 21. And Peter warns his churches there of the false teachers who, after they had escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It'd be better for you that you'd be that person in a remote village in Nepal who's never heard the name of Jesus and you die and you come before the throne and you don't even, you've never even heard of this guy you're looking in the face. He says, why should I let you in? And you say, I don't even know who you are, but you just plead his mercy. It would be better for you to be that person and not even have a, a, a sense of who he is than to be someone who knows and has looked him in the face and said no. The ones who do are those who we hear in Hebrews 10, verses 28 and 29, have trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which you were called and sanctified. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, if you have ears to hear, if you hear today, today is the day of your salvation. Don't wait. Sometimes I'm guilty up here from the pulpit of, of saying things like, if you're not ready to make the decision, that's okay. Just keep coming. And keep... I, I'm feeling convicted by this text today to tell you, don't wait. <laughs> don't dip the toe anymore. Jump in. Because he's good and he's worth it. He makes a really good Savior and a really good God and Lord your life will be more joyful if you give it to him. You are not good at running your own life. You're sinful. Your best attempts at justifying yourself fall short. You need a savior, and you have one. Will you receive him this morning? Paul says today is the day of salvation. Today can be the day of your salvation. If you've been waiting, this morning can be the day for you. That is number one. Check yourself. Examine yourself. That's, that's most important. Some of you, that's all you need to hear this morning. Number two, for those of us who have said yes to Jesus, but who still struggle with, okay, what do we do with this text, right? You told me I can't lose my salvation, so what next? Press on. Philippians 3, 8 through 12, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's the paradox. It's a paradox of the Christian faith. 
I press on to make it my own, but he's already made me his own. Like 2 Timothy uh, 2, verses 12 and 13, paradox there, where Paul talks about if we reject him, there's, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll let us do that. And yet, he says in the very next verse, if we're faithless, he will remain faithful. How can he say both those things? It's the paradox. We will try our hardest in our own flesh to give up on Jesus. But if we've truly been saved, he will keep us. John Piper says it this way. A lot of people think of eternal security like a vaccination. They think when I was six years old, I prayed a prayer, God vaccinated my arm, and therefore I can't get the disease of damnation. That's not the way it is. Rather, it is more like entering lifetime therapy with a doctor who says, you are my patient, you will do what I say, and I will get you to the end, whole in the last day. And so Piper says, he urges us, it's like Paul does in Philippians 2, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. The paradox, work out your salvation because it's God working in you. So be about it, Christian. Get this book open. Get on your knees. Cry out for God's keeping, sustaining grace. Immerse yourself in God's word. Paul tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. We need to hear that word every day. It was not enough to hear it when you were six years old. It was not enough to hear it at youth camp when you were 16 years old. It was not enough to hear it yesterday. You need to hear it today. If I'm going to believe, I have got to have God's word down in my heart. That is how he keeps me. Andrew Murray says, in commerce and study and war, it is often said, there's no safety but in advance. To stand still is to go back. To cease effort is to lose ground. Or the reference that I'm more familiar with, Big Tom Callahan from Tommy Boy in business, you're either growing or you're dying. There ain't no in-between. Analogy I came across this, this week is being a Christian is like riding a bike. You keep moving forward or else you're at serious risk of tipping over. It's very hard to stand still on a bike for very long. It's the same principle we shared Friday night at the the college and young adult workshop about dating and sexual purity and, and dating. The best defense is a strong offense. You want to be protected, guarded, saved from sexual impurity or anything else, falling away from the faith, chase after Jesus with all your heart. Press on. The undeniable spiritual axiom is this. Where there is life, there is growth. Faith is a relationship. It's not a decision. It's a relationship. It's a living, acting, active, breathing relationship with a person You've got to cultivate it. Press on, press in to Jesus. And finally, as you do, it's a paradox. Number three, rest in Christ. If you've checked yourself, if you're pressing on and you're running the race, like Paul says, to win the prize, 
you're chasing after Jesus with all your heart, then at the end of the day, you can go to bed safe and sound because Hebrews 3.14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Again, see the paradox there? Piper points out the author doesn't say if you hold your confidence firm to the end, you will get a share in Christ. He says, we know that we have had, past perfect tense, have had from the beginning of our lives with Christ, a share in Christ because we endure to the end to a certain extent. Proof is in the pudding. We'll wait and see. It's like George Whitfield, that example I used a couple weeks back, who after a revival and everyone had come forward, signed their pledge cards, someone asked him, Brother Whitfield, how many, how many souls were saved tonight? And the answer is, we'll see. We'll see. So, this morning, friends, I want to encourage you, and I want to challenge you. It's the paradox. This message is equal parts encouraging and challenging to press on, to examine yourself, and when you have, then rest in Christ, assured that he will hold you fast. Amen? Let's pray.